This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Soraya Nadia McDonald, the culture critic for The Undefeated, ESPN's premier platform covering race, sports, and culture. She writes about film, television, arts, fashion, and literature. Previously, she wrote for The Washington Post, where she focused on issues surrounding race, gender, and sexuality. Soraya, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for uh, fighting through the rain and uh, a cold. And we both have colds, so we can just kind of both sit here feeling a little bit grumpy and nasal um, and let that just seep into the advice we give everyone today. Exactly. (laughs) Just picture getting advice from Squidward. (laughs) Exactly. It's just going to be, you know, throw away your clarinet, get back in bed and try to ignore your neighbor as best you can. Yeah. (laughs) Um. So with that in mind, um, with the general understanding that our advice is going to be mostly today, please do less. Uh, Would you please read our first letter? Sure. Okay. Uh, Subject. I need the fridge space back. Dear Prudence, I am a 25-year-old woman who decided to freeze her eggs earlier this year. It was a great choice, and I'm incredibly grateful I was able to do it. There's definitely no Mr. Right in my near future or any desire on my part to find him right now. I feel so relieved and happy. I'm also very blessed with good health, and with a combination of this plus dumb luck, I responded very quickly to the treatment and was able to harvest many more eggs than expected. I ended up not needing most of the drugs I was prescribed. A couple months later, and I still have these extremely expensive drugs in my fridge with no idea what to do with them. My roommate is very understanding about why they're there, but I know she wants the fridge space back. Selling them feels like it's probably illegal, and frankly, I would be just fine giving them to another woman looking to harvest her eggs. The clinic nurse suggested bringing them back, but didn't explain where they would end up. I would definitely be annoyed if they got resold or something. I'm pretty sure I can't just throw away potent fertility drugs in the trash, not to mention the needles they come with, and I would really like to give them to a woman or couple who can use them. What do I do? How do I connect with someone who wants them? Would they even be allowed to take them if I offered? Or would it be breaking some kind of law? Please help. So uh, one thing that is useful to know is, yes, it is definitely illegal to sell medication. Uh, if you are not a doctor or a pharmacist. So that part we can answer super easily. Yes, it's illegal. Uh, I guess the question is, should she, like, try to find some way to help someone under the table? Which feels a little odd to me. Um, Yeah, I had had some trouble with this one because on the one hand, like, I totally understand – where this woman is is coming from, and I really appreciate her her generosity of spirit. Um, but also, you know, you're if you're not a doctor and you're not a pharmacist and you don't know 
you know, like how much whoever this person is who ends up who would theoretically end up with these drugs is supposed to take or for how long. Like there's just too many questions where this could end badly (laughs) that I think. Yeah, I I mean, yeah, I I, I think that that's true. I also like I spent a little time uh, kind of looking around after this and I want to it might help, although it might also feel a little tricky to know that like freezing your eggs is not something that has like an incredibly well-established track record of success. Um, it does not. It's something that's gotten marketed a lot in recent years. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily have uh, an incredible track record. So it's not like, um, I don't want you to feel like this could be the one thing that would enable somebody else to have the biological child that they really, really want. And if I don't pass it along, I'm denying them that. Like, this may very well successfully freeze your eggs and do nothing else which sounds harsh i feel yeah i just think that that's worth acknowledging this is not like um it's not quite the same thing as having like a frozen embryo which might have a slightly higher success rate um so keep that in perspective um that being said uh i think it's it's worth considering one thing i did edit out of this letter for for time but now i realize might be useful as this person said um i actually didn't go through a second round because we were able to harvest so many and and again it it might be worth spending you may already have done tons and tons of research but um again given that there's not a fabulous success record um you you may want to use those drugs um you may want to go above and beyond like as long as you are doing this and as long as you've already paid for this um you might want to increase the odds as much as you possibly can that's a good point in which case, what does she do about the fridge space? I guess, I don't know, how much how much space do these things take up? Should she just, like, get a little dorm fridge for her bedroom and just fill it with <laughs> with leftover fertility <laughs> drugs? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if you're considering doing that, talk to your doctor. Um, you know, maybe take the rest of them and, and do another cycle. Again, that may feel more time-consuming and expensive than you're willing to do, in which case um, you can always donate it back to your clinic. Um, you can take stuff like needles to a local needle exchange um, where they might actually be reused or given given to somebody else. Um, you can certainly ask your clinic if they are able to give it to somebody else who needs it. Um, you certainly have the option of trying to find somebody who needs it and giving it to them for free, um, while also taking into account the fact that you may be contributing to a risk and deciding whether or not you want to take that risk. I am not advising you to do anything illegal. No, please. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, it's one thing to, like, consider giving them away, trying to sell them, I think, would be uh, not good in in any sense. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, either donate them back to your fertility clinic, uh, consider whether or not you would want to give it to somebody and whether or not you'd be willing to take on those risks or use them. Yeah. This was, uh, I thought this was going to be, like, uh, more full of conflict than it was. Right. When I first read it, I was like, oh, man, this is this is hard. Are all of them going to be this difficult? <laughs> I'm um, sorry. And and what did you end up thinking? Mostly, I think it comes down to think about yourself Um, in terms of either like think about what is what is going to be like good and useful for you at this moment. Um that's also not going to harm other people. So if yeah. it's, you know, harvesting, using the rest of your fertility drugs to, like, harvest more of your eggs, that's totally fine. 
Um, but yeah, in this case, I was just like, what is like the least amount of harm that can be done? Um, and so I right. think that's either like use them up or or just take them back to your clinic and, and ask very nicely if, um, you know, if, if it's even possible for them to be donated to, you know, another person. Yeah, it would be great. I mean, part of what's hard is like the whole uh, system of how people get medication in this country is so fucked. Uh, oh, that, you know, like like <laughs> yes. reading about the upcoming like predicted insulin shortage, it's just like it's awful and horrible and um, everything about it is sad and upsetting. And um, it's really, really distressing when somebody has extra medication and other people can't afford it. Um, and that's a bigger problem than our, our particular letter writer is able to solve right now. Yeah. All right. So this next letter uh is a little late, actually. We're a little late on it, but I still wanted to answer it because I think this is definitely going to be an issue that keeps coming up. So it is a little bit evergreen, but the subject is reluctant hostess. Dear Prudence, my long-term partner and I like to invite both our families over for important meals, Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthdays, etc. And for several years, this has worked out well. His only sibling has three adult children, now in their late 20s, with many problems, such as serious mental illness, drug addiction, and legal woes. The oldest is on bail, awaiting a murder trial. The younger two actively abuse heroin, alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, and Xanax, and are prone to angry outbursts. Only one of them has a job. Their mother has confided she is sometimes afraid of them. My family members are very uncomfortable with these three and have begun to, quote, have other plans if they know they will be present, which makes me sad. I've suggested that we host my family on Thanksgiving and his family the day after, which is a lot of work, but it would diffuse things. He feels that I'm being unkind and uninclusive. He also feels like my family ought to be able to deal with his for a day. This year, I have family members traveling in who I don't often see, and I don't want to deal with the inevitable issues. How can I handle this with a minimum of hurt feelings? My secret impulse is to scream, I don't want these people in my house. So I just I just want to come out like immediately saying like somebody who is awaiting a murder trial, that's that's bigger than legal woes. Like, that's big. That's exactly. Mm-hmm. That's not like Uncle Craig is usually rude at family dinners, and I'm not sure. Like, that's, yeah. That, I feel like it's, it's very reasonable not to want these people in your house. Um, awaiting a murder trial and your own mother is afraid of you are just typically not traits that you would want in house guests. I think that's fairly reasonable. Yeah, it's not judgmental or or shaming to say as long as these three people have like periodic drug-fueled angry outbursts that they aren't doing any work to get help with or to control, I don't want them in my house. Like that's a really sane, healthy, normal response to have. Yes. I mean, I suppose there's a question about whether or not they should go elsewhere. <laughs> Uh, maybe for a few hours just to be together. Um, I mean, I'm also curious as to, okay, so this is your only sibling. How is this person's relationship with their, with their sibling and all of the, yeah, all of the sort of craziness that they're, they seem to be enduring with these three adult children? It does seem like the, the question of what, if anything, can the letter writer and their partner be doing to support that sister? is separate from should we have all these kids over for Thanksgiving knowing that, like, at any moment one of them may, like, throw a fit and right. you start screaming at people. Break something, um, hurt Those somebody. are two really separate things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, certainly 
talk to your partner about what do you think your sister might need? How can we help support her or even just like periodically give her a break or take her out for lunch and um, talk about something that's not her very, very upsetting children? Mm-hmm. Um but frankly, even saying we'll have them over the next day is a lot. I think if you don't feel safe with them in the house, it doesn't matter. You kind of have is. reason not to. Yeah, yeah, it's not unreasonable. You're not making that up. That's not just like oh, someone's been struggling with addiction, but they're otherwise like a really sweet, kind person to be around. They just need help. This is like this no. person's violent and angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I hope you did not, in fact, host them. If you did, and it didn't go well, please, 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 please feel very comfortable saying you are not obligated to do it again yeah yeah like you are responding to their behavior um you're not trying to say that they are irredeemable people you are simply saying i don't want to be around someone who has a habit of screaming perfectly reasonable the other thing i wonder about is in a situation like this especially when there are two kids because i'm well i'm in a family with just two children it's just me and my sister although neither of us have three kids i think right um, I think the sibling has three adult children, but they're oh, I see. The what letter you mean. writer the, is the, the only. partner and sibling. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and so I do wonder if there's anything that this person and their partner can do to help the mom as well. Like just like that line where the letter writer says that like this person's mother is also afraid of is of her own grandchildren. Um, I think is just really heartbreaking. Um, And so I can totally understand wanting to have like some sort of connection with your family that feels loving and worthwhile when you have all this other craziness that's going on. Um, And maybe there's just a conversation that all of you should have together about how you can do that. Although, I mean, I can't imagine that, like, if you have that conversation, the question in one way or another is going to come up about, like, alienating these three people. But they are adults. One is awaiting a murder trial. Um, Yeah. Are they worried about alienating them because they're scared of them? Or are they worried about alienating them because because they don't want to feel unkind? Yeah. I think that's the really important thing is to figure out with your partner, like, do they genuinely – like, are they – when they're around these people, are they, like, papering over stuff? Are they saying, like, without cause, like, I'm sure they didn't do it when you think there's actually excellent evidence that they did? Um, do they pretend that those outbursts don't happen? Do they tell other people they're overreacting when they're like, hey, when, you know, your 27-year-old niece threw a plate, I felt uncomfortable? Like, if that's going on, then I think it's really important to push back and to say, like, it's not unreasonable to say I'm not safe around these people and I'm not going to spend time with them. But if they're able to see that those things are dangerous um, and they're simply just, like, feeling really nervous and worried about their sister being isolated, um, then I think you can also stress, like, it's not that I just want to consign them to the ash heap of history and say, like, they're irredeemable and bad, but I also can't... um, just pretend that everything's fine if they're not getting help. Yeah. Yeah. So the the answers are going to be some version of like Al-Anon or support groups for people who love addicts um, or figuring out legal help or anger management help or um, making different choices or just supporting the sibling in question. But um, no, if, if, if they can't kind of demonstrate an ability to like get through a family meal without getting dangerous or threatening, then you don't have to have your family meals with them. All right. So uh, this next one is also about who do we include on the invite list? Um, <laughs> and it's 
it's certainly something. Yes. Okay. The subject is unsure inviter. Dear Prudence, I'm planning a wedding. We're paying for it ourselves. His parents have been incredibly supportive of our engagement until we started planning the guest list. Julio is the brother-in-law of my fiancé's uncle. He and his wife have come to every family function for years. They are older and wealthy, so although they live abroad, they always travel out. My future mother-in-law, Janet, recently sent me a long, unsolicited email demanding that Julio not be invited. I hate to bring her mental state into this, but she has had several episodes over the past months where she's accused strangers of hitting on her or stalking her or being a previous stalker in disguise, sometimes causing scenes in public. Most of these instances have been targeted toward people of color. These instances were all investigated and found to be unfounded. She has a history of delusions and takes medication to help with this, but is not actively seeing a mental health professional. She says that Julio makes her feel uneasy and feels that he is stalking her. I called her immediately to discuss if he had ever made any kind of unwanted advances towards her. She was very adamant that he has not, but that he makes her feel uneasy. We have been able to candidly speak about assault and harassment in the past, so I believe she would disclose any incidents to me. For the record, Julio is non-white and is culturally very different from my partner's family. He cheek kisses when he greets people, stands very physically close when speaking to others, and his English isn't especially fluent. She said she simply had a general feeling of unease, but we still must avoid inviting him. He's a staple at all family events and is very well loved. He welcomed me into the family when I started dating my partner. We both want him there, and there will be a lot of questions from many people if he and his wife are not. They will definitely attend if invited. I can't find a way to explain away his absence without disclosing Janet's concerns about him, which isn't my place. What should we do? I'm afraid that we'll alienate his mother if we invite him, but alienate my fiancé's uncles, cousins, and other extended family members if we don't. What is the best course of action here? For what it's worth, my fiancé already verbally invited Julio when he came to visit and stay with us a few months ago, so I feel like we're adequately bound to invite him now. Oh, man. (laughs) This is really sad. Uh, But it's also very clear. Yes. And that's a good thing. Yes. And oh. the, by the, the the clear thing is, you invite Julio. By the way, like you absolutely invite Julio. This is one of those instances where I'm kind of just grateful that I'm I'm not getting married. <laughs> um, yeah, because that's a that's a that's a bundle of issues. Okay, um, you yeah. absolutely invite Julio. The first thing I thought after reading this was. Like, how big is this reception going to be? And is it possible to just put them on opposite ends of the room? Uh, and will that be enough? Yeah. My my my, th- my thinking here is if she's already made scenes in public about strangers, that tells me that her whatever treatment she's receiving for her delusions right now is insufficient. Um, and that means that simply saying we're going to try to keep them apart from one another is not doing enough to protect Julio, um, who has done nothing wrong, uh, who sounds like a wonderful person who does not deserve to have uh, a racist tirade delivered at him in public at your wedding. So uh, unfortunately, I think the conversation you have to have with your fiancé is 
about this wedding in particular, but also in general moving forward, how do you deal with the fact that uh, your partner's mother is both suffering from delusions and racist? Right. Like the racism is not a part of the um, mental illness that requires treatments. That's not a mental illness. That's just racism. That's just racism. Um, So, yeah. So those are two really different things and you have to take them both seriously. You can feel compassion for her delusions and suffering um, and also be aware that, you know, the she could actually really, really harm someone. You know, like if she is a white woman claiming that men of color are trying to harass her and stalk her in public, um, that's very dangerous. That could potentially lead to police violence. That is an extremely good point. Yes. Right? Um, like white women do this sometimes and you got to be aware of it. We have a litany of nicknames now at this point, right, for uh, for white women who have called the police on people of color just for existing in a space somewhere. Yeah. So I think the way forward here um, can't be trying to cover up the embarrassment or trying to accommodate her or trying to keep um, everything hush-hush. It, it, it needs to be something that you're able to talk about really clearly, which is my partner's mother, unfortunately, has a history of delusions. Um, sometimes, uh, generally speaking, they're targeted towards men of color. Um, they're they come out of nowhere. They are not grounded in reality. They've often been investigated. Um, and we need to act accordingly. Um, and that may mean talking to her seriously about, like, not not encouraging these delusions, mm-hmm. um, I- encouraging her to um, receive better treatment, making it clear that we are inviting Julio to the reception. Um, and if you cannot, you know, commit to not harassing him, then you can't come. And that's going to feel really sad because that's your partner's mom. But if your mom can't commit to not harassing men of color in public, then your mom can't come to your party, you know? Well, the other thing that I'm sort of puzzled by is is that so much of this responsibility for dealing with this and thinking about this and worrying about this is falling to the letter writer um, when this isn't even like this person's side of the family, <laughs> um, right? It's right. it's your it's your future and mother-in-law, or you know your partner's mother. Um, and so I I'm wondering if this person has had any sort of conversations with their partner at all, just about um, their parents or or their mother in particular, and their mother's racism and if this is like shown up in other ways and what they did about it then if anything right i think that's a really good point definitely my read on this letter i i could be mistaken but my read is that the fiance in question is a guy and the letter writer is a woman um because this does seem to fall along sort of gendered lines of like well, you know, the woman's the one planning the wedding. She's the one responsible for making everybody happy. It's kind of her business, um, and and it's not really his. So, like the fact yeah, that dude, your mother-in-law sent you the email, <laughs> yeah, like your mother-in-law sent you the email about her own family member, um, like that's yeah. And again, even if even if we're mistaken about the gender, all this still stands. But like, if that is also part of this mix, your partner really needs to start stepping up and not just being like, wow, that's really weird of my mom. Sorry, I don't know how to help. Like, this is big. This is like the first test of your marriage. And it's a big one. And like, what happens? What happens like further down the line? Um, at other 
family functions. Right. Or other non-white people who are part of your life, um, who you would like to have at important events and um, not be harassed by your mother-in-law. Right. Because the other thing I was wondering is, okay, like, is is Uncle Julio going to be, like, the only guest of color at this wedding? Um, is there any concern that this person's mother is going to just that these delusions may cause her to, like, lash out at someone else. Um, right. If he doesn't show up, who's she going to pick on instead? Right. Which is really sad. I'm really sorry. That's a... I, I am too. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's a really good point because if you, like, maybe this one time if you gave in and she won and you, like, made up some weird lie to Julio, you'd feel like, oof, bullet dodged. But, like... If she comes to future events and this is not something that you guys are able to deal with as a family, this will happen again. Unless your plan is never invite Julio to family events ever again, never tell him why, hope he never finds out why. That's a strategy that's going to fall apart. I'm also just very curious about, like, because if Julio has been sort of like this beloved person who always comes to things with his wife, um, like, if whatever friction... um, the letter writer's, like, future mother-in-law is experiencing, like, has this shown up before? Is the, Yeah. Are there yeah, any other, like, sort of previous incidents? Well, I guess the previous incidents are with the strangers. Um, yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, like, the letter writer called right away to say, like, hey, can you tell me what he's done? Mm-hmm. And the mother was like, nothing. Um, he just makes me uneasy. And, yeah, and that's just so that's telling, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, he hasn't done anything but, uh, you know, I have a lot of, like, racial assumptions about his intentions because he's a man of color and I'm a white woman. Um, and so he's responsible for making me feel comfortable. Um, and it, it's like you can even see in the letter writer there's this kind of attempt to find some sort of justification for this of, like, well, maybe it's because he cheek kisses people or maybe because he stands mm-hmm. close when he's talking or his English isn't especially fluent. But, like, none of those are acts of aggression no so like trying to find an excuse for her racist delusion and his behavior that dog's not going to hunt like it's not something he's doing it's her yes and you need to make it clear to her that it's not okay this is definitely something that yeah you're just i think you you basically sort of have to confront there's no way to avoid it because you know if you're if this person who's going to be your mother-in-law is comfortable sort of revealing your racism, her racism to you, um, you know, that doesn't just affect Uncle Julio or whatever, like, random strangers she yells at. Um, but also, you know, I don't know if one day you and your partner are planning on having children, but, you know, presumably those children are going to have friends and they're not all going to be white. <laughs> um, right. But yeah, it sounds like this comes down to having to have a difficult conversation um, with your partner um, about his mother's racism and what you're going to do about it and what your sort of responsibility is to do about it. And that's that's really tough. <laughs> uh, I know, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, it's really easy to just say, like, white people, you got to talk to other white people about racism. Like, that's your responsibility, um, which is true. I think it's everybody's responsibility to deal with racism. Um, that doesn't necessarily make it easy. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think, as you were saying, like, 
what you have to do here is not easy, but it is simple. Yes. Um, and and that can be really tricky. Um, but, you know, you've already invited Julio. You know he hasn't done anything wrong. You care about him. Uh, you invite him to the wedding. That's yes. step number one. Absolutely. Step number two is talking to your partner about their mother um, and figuring out how are we going to ensure Julio's safety. And um, if we can't feel relatively confident that your mother can be present and not harass him, then we have to do something painful and difficult and say, we can't have you at this wedding. And then you have to figure out how will we deal with the fallout of the extended family, which may feel like um, her racism should be given more of a cushion than it is. um, And how do we deal with this in the future? Um, But again, it's an issue of like, you know, don't don't pass this off as nothing. Like if you mm-hmm. know that she has a history of falsely accusing people of color of trying to harass um, or assault her, like people get killed over that. People of color get mm-hmm. killed over that. That's really dangerous. This is not like a harmless racist quirk you can indulge. Yep. And also, I think it's really important for you guys to have an honest discussion about this because it basically is an opportunity for you if you have not already to establish establish like your sort of own personal grounding in anti-racism and what to do about it and what that looks like for you. Um, because if you haven't had those conversations, you know, that's something that's, that's really important. And, you know, if you're thought, assuming, you know, you're thoughtful enough to write this letter, um, you know, that's something you might want to think about in terms of just how that's going to affect your relationship in the future um, in terms of whether or not you and your partner are see eye to eye when it comes to identifying and then doing something about racism. Right. Right. And this will be big, but it's important to have this kind of conversation with somebody you plan on spending your life with. The good news is you're paying for your own wedding, so you don't have to worry about somebody pulling funding. You don't have that added stressor. Um, And it also sounds like you know that the extended family would probably be on Julio's side. So you at least know, okay, we're probably not going to have to fight the entire family on this one. So you can have compassion for your mother's mental illness while also taking her racism seriously and not giving it, um, you know, room to cause more harm. Um, and you you have a clear way forward here. And I hope that your mom is able to get better treatment than the treatment she currently has. And I hope she doesn't cause additional harm. Yeah. yeah. Good luck. Yeah, good luck. All right. So uh, very holiday and family get together heavy letters today. I will try to make sure that future episodes are just about nothing but shared fridges in the workplace um, so that we can take a little bit of a break. But uh, the subject of this one is not coming home. Dear Prudence, I'm not coming home for the holidays. I haven't been to one since I turned 18. Since I was 12, the holidays were all about having a baby shoved into my arms while my relatives got drunk and my boy cousins made messes that I was expected to clean up. More attention was paid to my lack of a love life than my interests or academic successes. I watched my mother get cut down smaller and smaller for getting divorced or moving away. And I watched my grandmother make excuses for why her sons were so drunk they couldn't manage to get up the stairs. I hated it. My mother made us go every year. My mother lays on the guilt. I've used excuses in the past, but I don't want to waste hundreds of dollars to go see these people. I love her, but it would break her heart if I told her the truth. Family's everything according to her. She sacrificed a lot for me, but I know I would not be able to keep quiet anymore. 
what do I do? Can you have Thanksgiving or, you know, whatever other holiday is coming up in the future somewhere else? Away? <laughs> well, it seems um, like it seems like the letter writer has, right? Like, it seems more like they've been able to spend the holidays elsewhere for years. Well, I mean, like, with sort the of, mother. Like, what if you and your uh, mother, like, you go to the Bahamas or something for Christmas or Hanukkah or... Ooh. Whatever, yeah, I mean, if you've Kwanzaa. got Bahamas money, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, I don't know that this will work every year. But what if you're like, hey, I just want to do something special, and I want to have a really intimate holiday with you, where we get to spend time with each other. Um, you know, that could be one thing. Um, I That's lovely. am very much like, um, I identified with this letter writer, like, a great deal. Uh, Because that was one of the sort of earliest resentments I had about getting together with extended family for Thanksgiving uh, was when I realized, like, the sort of gendered breakdown of labor. (laughs) It used to make me really angry. Uh, And so I totally understand observing that and being upset about that and then also having to deal with, with... drunken family members. Um, I mean, my family were, you know, I came from a family of teetotalers, so I didn't have that problem. (laughs) But I absolutely get it. And I think that you are, you are an adult. Uh, And one of the nice things about being an adult and having your own money is that you get to make decisions about what you want to do and take care of your health and your well-being. Uh, And I know Especially, like, when you're young. (laughs) Um, I think that, did this person say that they just turned 18 or that this is something that they haven't, okay, you haven't been to one since you were 18. I think they stopped going since they were 18 and they're in 20s, Um, 30s, 40s, something now. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the wonderful things about being an adult is that you get to do what you want with your money. I, parental guilt is difficult, but I think... um, which is why I think the idea of presenting an alternative that might be attractive to both of you can sort of diffuse that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, too, because I also feel like I often get presented with situations where I feel like high conflict is totally unavoidable. So I, I whenever I can, I want to take the opportunity to offer someone a low conflict route. So I do really like the idea of like, Maybe there's someplace you know your mom's always wanted to go. Maybe you can't afford the Bahamas, but it's somewhere kind of closer and and you can. You can kind of float that as an alternative. Um, and you also can keep making excuses. Um, if if you don't really want to get into a big conversation like, Mom, I know that you make excuses for them, but I don't want to. And I think that you need to stop and I'm not going to do it anymore. Like if that is just a conversation you can't, imagine having with her right now you can do like oh i'm sick um and i'll see you in january or you know oh i can't afford tickets this year because my dog exploded (sighs) like you can absolutely tell polite lies indefinitely there you go but yeah yeah stick with the polite lies if that's been working and she's like and she keeps asking and you're like whatever it's kind of frustrating but i'm willing to come up with a new excuse every year keep coming up with a new excuse every year that's totally fine um and yeah whatever whatever option is just going to get you through the holidays with the least amount of fighting or guilt trips and just 
you know, go with, oh, it sounds great. Say hi to everyone. I got to go. My dog's exploding again. Like just the dog will keep exploding, keep getting off the phone. Yeah. Because I just feel like, you know, your mom saw all this happen for years and years and years. Like, I don't know how much luck you're going to have convincing her that it was bad. Like she saw it and she's obviously right aware of how bad it was. She's just made a different bed than you. And presumably the fact that you're not choosing to climb back in it every year makes her feel a little like self-conscious about her own choice. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know. Which is what comes with like being an adult. And then you start to see, you start to see your parents in a different light because you're, especially if you're not sort of beholden to that sort of parental authority that they held over you for so long. Um, Right. Because that's really, I think what's, that's the part that you're, that's always difficult to sort of break away from. And, you know, as Daniel already said, there there are any number of options for doing that. Either, you know, your dog exploded. Um, yeah. If you don't want to have, like, this huge, drawn-out conversation about, you know, the fact that you think that your family doesn't treat or appreciate women well. <laughs> um, yeah. And where your mother, like, fits into all of that. And, yeah, because I'm sure, you know, she's got her own stuff that she's either stuffed down or, you know, has dealt with in the way that she's decided to or not. Um, And yeah, that's okay. Yeah. And I do. Yeah, I get it. Like, I'll just throw one last thing out there, which is just that, um, you know, if you do at some point, if she like just won't take the excuses anymore, um, you can just say like, you don't have to agree. You can just say like, um, I don't like it. I never liked it as a kid. I don't enjoy being around them. They're not kind to me. Um, And I I don't feel the same way about them that you do, but I totally understand that um, you're closer to a lot of them and I'm glad that you get something out of it. Um, Like, don't provide her with an argument. And then if she tries to say, but family is everything, be like, yeah, I don't really see them as my family. I see you as my family. Um, And and just kind of leave it at that, which again, she will probably still lay on the guilt trip. There will be some hurt inevitably, Um, but you can just say, mom, we're just going to agree to disagree on this one. I love you so much. I don't have fond memories of those people. Mm-hmm. I'll see you in January. Exactly. Yes. The other thing is, um, yeah, if she's, if part of like what this is, is that like the holidays are sort of like the designated time, you know, that she sort of relies on seeing you, just make sure that there's, you know, a realistic alternative. Like, okay, I'm not going to do this, but we'll do this. Um, as opposed yeah. to, I'm not coming home from the holiday, you know, for the holidays or ever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, this next letter differs slightly from the first half, so we're we're moving into a slightly different mode. All right. Subject. Dominatrix a no-go. Dear Prudence, I've been married 34 years. Sex until the last few years was more than great. Now it's non-existent. I was diagnosed bipolar and take a cocktail of pills. It's killed any sexual desire I had. Then I had a double mastectomy two years ago. I've tried everything and my self-esteem is shot. Add to that, my husband has a bent penis. Put it all together, the meds, the mastectomy, and his penis, and sex isn't appealing. Except to my husband. I've tried pleasing him, but now he wants to see a professional dominatrix. When he asked me, it just tore me to the core, hurt me terribly. I can't get him to understand how I feel. We even saw a therapist. She said, I should at least try something. 
no help. I can't make him understand how that practice totally disgusts me. How can I get him to understand? Oh, boy. <laughs> I had a couple of questions. Okay. Um, I, I It was genuinely unclear to me if if the letter writer's husband had suffered, like, a penis injury that made sex difficult or if they were simply, like, throwing in with all this really serious stuff, just like this sort of, like, ugh, aesthetically, I think it could be straighter, and I'm, like, kind of a jerk about it. I was wondering the same thing, too, because I'm like, wait, 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 was the bent penis not an issue for 34 years? Yeah, like, if his penis just sort of naturally, like, is a little bent and you don't, like, if it hurts, that's different. Like, if, right. if it's so bent that it causes you pain, that makes a ton of sense. If it's just mildly bent, that doesn't, to me, that does not fall anywhere near into the same category as my meds have killed my sex drive uh, or I right. feel really low self-esteem. Yes, this is definitely, I feel like there's there's a couple layers of issues here. Also, most, like a dominatrix won't have sex with you. Right. Like that's not the service a dominatrix provides. Yes. So if his... That was my other thing is like, mm -hmm. yeah, okay, you won't yeah, get so the thing you want the from that particular service provider. Right. Yeah. Because, um, so I, you know, I will be just totally full disclosure. Um, like, I am very much like pro-dominatrix. Um, I, I just think sure. they are great people <laughs> and provide like, um, who provide a service that a lot of people appreciate. Um and so part of me wants to just be like, okay, can you, can you, well, you can't tell us, but can you sort of think about yourself and what is it um, about the idea of a dominatrix, um, particularly one who's not going to have sex with your husband, but who is just going to engage in some sort of BDSM play? Like, what is it that just, that hurts you so much about that? Um because I, I, I mean, I think that's totally legitimate. That you're hurt by like, your I husband think, wanting to see a dominatrix? Yeah, I, I think you can absolutely be like, I'm fully on board with anybody who, like, does this as a side gig or a job. And also, I don't want my partnership to include something. I, I think it's, the key for me here is, like, I've tried pleasing him. So, like, we know the letter writer, despite having a really hard time engaging sexually herself, um, has, like, worked hard to, like, make sure that sex where he gets off is still a part of their marriage. Right. And he's like, that's not good enough. I'd also like to hire somebody to dominate me. And that, to me, feels like it's not like... I, I don't know. That, to me, just feels, like, kind of shitty. Like, she's already doing a lot. And then he's like, well, um, you know, if we can't have traditional sex, I'd like to pay somebody to dominate me. And that just feels like... It's okay for the letter writer to not like that and to say, I don't want that oh, in yeah. our marriage. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I, I do too. I mean, I think, yes, it is. Yes. The other thing that worries me is that, like, this person has, this person has gone through a lot of stuff um, that has, like, radical changes um, when it comes to, like, how you see yourself and especially how you see yourself as a sexual person. Um <laughs> You know, a double mastectomy is, is you know, that's not nothing. Um, and neither yeah. is, um, you know, neither is taking like a cocktail of um, of drugs to sort of to keep your, um, your BPD in check. Um, 
And so, I mean, part of what I'm wondering is if she feels like this is a betrayal um, Mm -hmm. and feels really hurt by that. And I'm wondering also if part of this hurt has to do with not feeling desired, you know, on her own. Um, Right. Because that's just, that's a really, that's awful. Um, Yeah. You know, and the two of you have been together for 34 years. Um, And so I would imagine, like, if, if something like this has never come up before and this conversation has never come up before, then, yeah, that can feel, like, really traumatic in a way um Mm -hmm. you know because it's like wait like everything was fine for 30 plus years and now you want to sort of spring this thing on me that we've never discussed before um right i think especially when we know that like men who leave their partners when their partners get sick is a lot higher than women who leave their partners when their partners get sick yes and so just like kind of being aware of that dynamic i'm just i'm curious here you know yeah like you say it's it's one thing to say like man we've had like 30 plus years of a what sounded like a solid marriage with an active sex life we've hit a couple of significant bumps in the road but the letter writer is still it sounds like trying pretty hard to like include sex that she doesn't really enjoy for his sake Mm -hmm. and his response to that is sort of like yeah well i need more and i'm just curious like i don't know that that's what's he done to kind of help you out i don't know that I don't know that I read that into it because I almost Hmm. like what I heard was possibly a person who like sees how much his partner is trying and Hmm. would rather not burden her if this is something that isn't pleasurable for her um, and would maybe like, you know, rather than like adding this to like the list of things that, you know, she's dealing with. Um, mm. <laughs> would maybe want to outsource it? I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little too generous. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that like the bit about it's torn me to the core. It hurts me terribly, but I can't get him to understand how I feel. That to me suggests it's not that he is also trying to be noble and self-sacrificing. Um, that to me says the letter writer has said like, this really hurts me. This is really painful. And he's like, yeah, but the therapist said I could. Mm. Um as if a that therapist is, was right. just like a referee who gives you points to do what you want. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I would, you know, I, I think letter writer, I, I understand where some of your pain is coming from. You've been through a lot of really difficult things in the last few years. And if your husband, if, if kind of the only thing on his like agenda items is like, make sure I'm allowed to hire a dominatrix and not like talk honestly with my partner about what she needs as well, what's hard for her being patient um, talking about what I want, but also making room for her, then I get why you feel pretty devastated. Um, so I, I think that's really the thing to pay attention to. I do wonder, like, if sex just isn't enjoyable for you in the way that it used to be, if the letter writer would at all be interested in sort of, like, exploring this, like, BDSM experimentation, like, with her husband? Um, like I'm trying to, I'm like, is it the, is it the dominatrix part or is it just the outside of the marriage part? 
Yeah, my 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 thing here is I think if that were possible, that'd be really interesting and cool. But I think the thing that that needs to um, be founded upon is a relatively healthy marriage with some give and take. And until and unless you can address that, just saying, how can I find a way to accommodate my husband when I am going through like a, a, a difficult like way of dealing with like my body changing pretty dramatically, right. then that to me feels insufficient. I, I think the thing to say we right want now both of is, them to be happy and um, fulfilled and yes, yes, yes. It is not an emergency um, if your husband doesn't get to see a dominatrix. Like, um, it's not like he's been in a sexless marriage. He hasn't been getting anything from you. He's not in pain. Like, the thing to say right now is, like, we have to talk about this. This is big and this is serious. I feel like you're not listening to me. I've tried explaining to you how much this would hurt me, and I feel like kind of all you want is, like, a permission slip. Mm. Um, can we take this off the table right now so we can talk about the feelings underneath it? And if he's willing and able to do that and to listen, that's a really good sign. And if he's just totally checked out, that's pretty big. And and I think bigger even than whether or not he does see somebody for this. Yeah. Then he's just sort of, then he's an inconsiderate jerk. And you might just be yeah. better off without with him. The caveat, <laughs> with the caveat that if you are yourself you being know. a jerk about his... I, I just have so many questions about the bent penis thing. It, it felt like such a jarring note. I do too, right? <laughs> yeah. And so if like if the point of seeing the couples therapist was just he was looking for a permission slip, maybe spend some time seeing a therapist by yourself for dealing with your own self-esteem and, and like living in your body. Because you deserve that. Not with the goal of getting fixed so that you can enjoy sex as much as your husband does again, but just in the sense of like you need. Yeah, you deserve it. Yes, exactly. Just. So that you feel like the best that you possibly can. Because the other thing I think that's really important about that is that, like, you have a sense of, like, that you also, like, you deserve pleasure and you deserve to feel loved and desired and appreciated. And those things are all really important. Um, But also that, like, knowing, having that sort of central core you know where you like believe that um and you believe that you know your your pleasure is just as important as his i think is something that seeing a therapist on your own um can sort of, can really help with yes and then i think in the meantime to say to your husband like I want to talk about what's not working for you. I want to talk about both of our needs. I want to talk about alternatives to, like, the sex that we used to have that are going to make you feel like there's still a sexual connection here and don't make me feel full of despair and agony. Um, And I want to be able to discuss those things. But I just need, to uh, like, hiring somebody else to be off the table because, like, that is an issue that may feel important to you. But I'm guessing not seeing a dominatrix wouldn't tear him to the core. You know? Right. Like... If it's something that he would like and that makes you feel devastated and cheated on, then one of those things is a little bigger than the other. And that doesn't mean what he wants doesn't matter. It just means that um, he needs to stop and pay attention to how this affects you. There's just so many options, right? Like if he wants to have some kind of sex life. It's not unreasonable to want your husband to be considerate. (laughs) 
Yeah. And or to say, like, look, let's talk about domination. Like you can, you know, let's find a way for like you to get off where I can like be in the room and maybe fully clothed, but also participating in some way. We can figure some of this out, but you can't just rush to hire somebody because that's going to be papering over this. Yes. And in a way that doesn't feel obligatory. Right. Exactly. Like Like you're fulfilling some sort of duty as opposed to doing this because it's what you want. Yeah. And I know I've been kind of hard on the the husband in this letter. And I don't want to like he is not a bad person for wanting to have sex. Um, it, It's not just like, oh, just get over it. Your wife is done. Therefore, you should be done, too. But there are ways to talk about things that you want that aren't just like rushing somebody else to hurry through their pain as quickly as possible so that you get what you want. And I think he needs to slow down. So last one. Yeah, it's wonderful because it's relatively small scale, but I also really hate someone in it. And there's nothing I like more than hating someone for very small reasons. The subject, the subject is selfish coworker. Dear Prudence, Debbie is a new employee in my office. She's a good person who never spends a penny on herself. She's also raising two grandchildren and a great grandchild. She loves Starbucks, and I treat her every other day when I go out for coffee. It isn't a big expense for me, and it puts a smile on her face. My problem is Pam. She works in our area of the office, but in a different department. She's loud and lazy, never wants to go out and get her own food, but loves just taking a bit from everybody else. Pam has started to pointedly complain that she never gets Starbucks, that no one ever treats her, and aren't we friends? It embarrasses Debbie. She just turned me down the last few times I've offered. I'm frustrated. It doesn't feel like a situation worth taking to HR, and my supervisor has no backbone. Taking Pam aside and talking to her quietly is out of the question. The woman has no shame and no filter. She also makes more than both Debbie and me. Is there a way I can turn Pam down without making a ruckus, short of telling her point blank that we are not friends and to stop being such a beggar? I still have to see Pam every day, and her desk is right across from me. Pam! I hate you. Yeah. What gives? This is like the parable of the rich man and the poor man's lamb. (laughs) You know? This is like biblical. This is like some Bathsheba stuff. (laughs) You've got everything, Pam. Right. Except friends. Oh, except friends. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do if this is you? I think what I would do is at this point because, you know— if I'm if I'm the letter writer and I've been treating Debbie fairly regularly to coffee, I would imagine that like I know her coffee order by now. And so like I wouldn't even say anything. Like when I go out for coffee, I would just go to Starbucks and just get the coffee and just like slip it on Debbie's desk. Do you worry at all that that would make Debbie like I, it was a little unclear if Pam is complaining to the letter writer or to Debbie or kind of just to anyone who will listen? Mm. Like, do you think that that would make Debbie a bit of a target of like, oh, I see you have Starbucks on your desk again. Who got it for you? Yikes. Because here's my thought with that. And again, this is a real low conflict route. It's get a mug from the office and have the barista fill that so that when you slip it onto Debbie's desk, it could plaus I mean unless her order is like really ostentatiously a Starbucks drink. Right. Um it looks like coffee she could have plausibly gotten for herself from the office coffee machine. That is also an option. Sneaky. Although this still basically involves like finding some way to like quietly avoid Pam's wrath. Right. Which Pam <sighs> Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Read the room, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you also have the option of just accepting that for the most part, 
you're just going to have to find other ways to be friendly to Debbie. Like, you know, it's nice that you get her this coffee regularly, but if it's causing her headaches and making her uncomfortable, um, you don't want her to feel so passive aggressive. Right. Because you don't want Debbie to feel like she's caught in the middle of like a power struggle between you and Pam. And if she's new. So that's I mean, okay. so the thing is, right, is that. Like passive aggressive people exist in every office. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have found like personally, there's there's no way really if you're especially if you've been somewhere for a long time to circumvent that Mm -hmm. at some point, you just got to go through it. And then people will shut up. And it's it's difficult because, like, nobody wants to have confrontations at the office. Right. And especially because even if, you know, if something happens, like, in the middle of the room, you know, and everybody starts whispering about it, and then it just seems really strange because it's like, Jesus Christ, is this really about coffee? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, that can be, that can be difficult. Um, so I would say it's, you know what? I would just be upfront. Mm-hmm. Um, the next time, like Pam tries to corner you, and I think I would just say, I just, I want to do something kind for Debbie because I think she's a nice person. And why does that bother you so much? Yeah, I think it it does depend a lot on like is pam com- like if pam's talking directly to the letter writer absolutely i think you have some real scope to say like pam please stop like just as simple as like yeah please stop asking me to buy you things um that is totally fine also pam, you make more than both of them that i mean that's the other thing is like i really don't want the letter writer to have to justify it in a way that makes it clear like hey i think debbie doesn't make very much money cuz that would embarrass her way more than pam ever could right yeah so yeah. bear bear in mind like am i saying anything that could potentially make things more uncomfortable for debbie and air, Debbie. yeah, air. That's what we do not want. Yeah, air on the side of don't make life unnecessarily difficult for Debbie. And so, if you think that Pam is gonna like circumvent this somehow or try to get her alone, then just knock it off. And like maybe you know after work, take Debbie out for Starbucks afterwards or something. You know, um, maybe occasionally go out for lunch together. Maybe do something that if Pam were to say, "What are you two up to?" You would be able to handle pretty easily. Um, on your own and like take absorb that for Debbie. Also, like, what is Pam so afraid of? Is there like, are these two? Is she afraid they're planning some sort of mutiny to overthrow her? Like, Pam wants to be loved and feared in equal measure. That is exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So Pam sucks, and certainly if Pam is just sort of like loudly speaking to the office, like, why doesn't anyone ever get me Starbucks? You can always just say, Pam, do you mind keeping it down? I need to get back to work. <laughs> Be a little abrupt with Pam. Be a little like, sorry, Pam, I need to take this call. Yeah. I do not think that you necessarily need to treat Pam with kid gloves. No. Sorry, Pam, is this question work-related? Because if not, I have a meeting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As long as it's not going to somehow, like, blow back on Debbie, like, you have have quite a bit of range uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in terms of your options. Uh, Yeah, I... Pam, I am thinking back to the Pams that I have worked with and wishing that I had mm-hmm. said things like, Pam, is this work related? Because I need to get back to a meeting rather than like just grinding my teeth and like quietly raging. 
Yeah. Yes. But yeah. Because um, PAMs will raise your blood pressure. Don't don't yeah, let that happen. Yeah. Loudly complaining that people who make way less than you are being occasionally brought coffee a few times a week is just... It's some real thou art the man nonsense. It's very, very like, where's the prophet Nathan when you need him? <laughs> All right. On that note, I uh, I have a cold that I want to nurse. I want to get back in bed and chug some Dayquil. Same. Soraya, <laughs> thank you. Thank yeah, you, Daniel. I hope yours passes quickly. I'm so glad I got to do this. I am too. And if I ever hear back from the Debbie and Pam coworker, I will be sure to let you know first. Oh, I would love to hear how that turns out. And I'll let all the rest of you know as well. Yeah. Yeah. Please keep us surprised, letter writer. We would love to know um, if any any uh, new developments arise. Um, thank you so, so much. Feel better soon. Thank you. And same to you. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Production assistance by Taylor Simmons. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. 